Hello, gang. It is Wednesday, September. Jesus Christ. Am I ever going to get the date right? It's Wednesday, April 27th. I guess that's what I meant to say. 2016. Uh, welcome to the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of this lovely podcast and the senior editor at MMA Fighting. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Today on the podcast, we will talk about, of course, the big news, UFC 200. There was an announcement uh, this morning on ABC's Good Morning America. There's a press conference right after this podcast for UFC 200 at Madison Square Garden, um, which is why this podcast has been pushed back an hour today, so we didn't run in, into that. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me and accommodating me on that time. Uh, appreciate everyone joining me. Uh, we'll, so we'll talk about UFC 200, we'll recap UFC 197, some of the things coming out of that, and a whole lot more. Uh, best place to get your question in is going to be on MMAfighting.com. Comments that turn green get priority but not exclusivity. And you can get at me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Um, yeah, oh, I'm on Snapchat too, the Luke Thomas 79 So give me an ad and you can see all of my terribly, terribly stupid snaps that are there. Snapchat's great because it's a place where, like, if you're on Twitter, there's this documented list of all the things you've said. Same with like, same with anything, really. They they document everything, and you know, I'm sure that somewhere on some server, every snap you send is actually documented. But at least you get the illusion of thinking, uh, well, all of this just goes away eventually. I like the idea that at least in my mind, it goes away for a little bit. Um, I think that's better. There's too much permanence on the internet. All right. Let's kick this off, shall we? First question is terrible. <laughs> uh, okay, first question is kind of weird. That's green. Tumanov versus Nelson. Can you talk about this matchup? Personally, I'm very excited for this fight, but I can't seem to picture how it plays out. So this is Tumanov versus Gunnar Nelson, yes? Booked for UFC fight night. Rotterdam. So I guess this is next or yeah, next week. Jeez, I hadn't even thought about it. Uh, this is a tough fight for Nelson because Tumanov is a master of distance. Tumanov has a limited range of weapons, but he can he can operate in kicking range. He's very good at finding angles. He's good at working um, multi-punch combinations, um, deadly accurate, good power. Uh, stays out of a lot of trouble, durable, good takedown defense. This is a tough fight for for Nelson. Um, I really like Tumanov's chances here. If Nelson can get it to the ground, that'd be interesting. But I think that there's a problem with Nelson at welterweight. I mean, he might fit best at welterweight, but the way other welterweights work, I feel like he's a little bit undersized for the weight class. I don't know if going down to 155 is even possible. He may be one of those guys who fits better at like a 163 or 4. But whatever the case... Um, Tumanov, let's see, is he the favorite? Let's see about that. He's not, he should be. Yeah, he is. Not not a heavy one, but he is a favorite. Minus 170, minus 175. So, um, so yeah. Minus 185 at Bovada. It's a little high. Almost 190 at some places. You get the idea. I just feel like... Tumanov's offense is is narrow. Like he's not going to take the back. Um, you know, he's not a guy who's going to win a lot of knees in the clinch like DJ did over the weekend. But the one or two weapons, and I say two weapons, I mean like the two areas of weapons that he uses. Essentially, he's a kickboxer, boxer. He's just really good at it. Really good at it. You got to take that away from him. That's not easy to do. 
All right. Uh, hi, Luke. I understand MMA analytics aren't exactly your forte. Thank you, I guess. But how much of a hit in terms of pay-per-view numbers do you expect UFC 200 to take with DC versus Cormier 2 replacing Connor versus Nate 2? Do you feel UFC brass has cut off their nose despite their face financially by remaining almost childishly obstinate in the refusal to negotiate media appearances with their biggest pay-per-view draw? Um, so Darren Ravel, I think, tweeted today it was like 500,000 buys. Uh, I'd argue it's at least that, if not more. 500,000 seems, I won't say low, but at the low end of the reasonable um, losses here. But I really have to say, in in assessing this, you guys know, you saw all the things I said last week. Um, you, you saw last week's chat where I told you I was sympathetic to him, but I didn't know how this was going to play out for him. And it looks like it has played out rather poorly for him, Conor McGregor. Um, because he has garnered sympathy and he has raised legitimate concerns about whether fighters should be promoted or uh, paid to promote, especially if they're headliners. And I have an interview with Phil Davis uh, that I recorded yesterday on Capitol Hill about this very issue coming out, so stay tuned. But, yeah, he overplayed his hand here big time. He really, really overplayed his hand because here's what the UFC wound up doing, if you just look at it from their perspective. What they basically said was uh, the instant that Conor McGregor was like, I'm not participating – they immediately removed him from the card. They tried to keep on Nate in, in Dana's words as a, a favor to him. If he didn't want to be on it, they didn't want to be on it. But then they put on Cormier versus Jones too. Now, let's look at that UFC 200 card, shall we? Let's ask ourselves something here. You can say whatever you want about the card being what you wanted it to be or what it is or, you know. Is it what it could have been, or does it have the same casual fan hook? No, it does not. But I really think that people are really wrong about this card in a number of ways. But here's 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 this card as it stands today. It's April 27th. John Jones versus Daniel Cormier, two, arguably one of the biggest rivalries in the sport for the UFC light heavyweight title. Jose Aldo versus Frankie Edgar, two, for the interim featherweight title. Misha Tate will defend her bantamweight title against Amanda Nunes. Cain Velasquez returns to face Travis Brown. Former champion Johnny Hendricks takes on Kel Kelvin Gastelum. Musasi fights Derek Brunson. Diego Sanchez fights Joe Lazon. Sage Northcutt will fight uh, whatever this um, Marine Enrique Marin. Miller, Jim Miller will take on Takanori Gomi, and then Cad Zingano versus Juliana Pena. Folks, I got news for you. That is an excellent fight card. No two ways about it. I am not comparing what what it could do from a financial upside terms of what it would provide if, if Connor was on there but that's by any measurement a superb fight card maybe even too much of a fight card given that there's three title fights on it um that could be a little bit challenging to keep that under the standard pay-per-view limit but that's a really great card it seems to me that he really Connor McGregor did overplayed his hand the UFC didn't budge for an instant it seems like from the public perception anyway they didn't move a muscle on this. And I think that if fighters want to stand up for themselves, they have to. And if fighters want to stand up for themselves, they need to. Because no one else can do that for them. The media has, and people like me, have talked about this endlessly, about how um, there is this imbalance in the, in, in the negotiating leverage. But look at what it does when I talk about it. Nothing. It does nothing, or virtually nothing. It helps raise some awareness as the media generally talks about it. But enough to really affect change. Not much, man. Not much. Especially when you've got other fighters who are willing to just 
pick up where McGregor left off. Oh, McGregor missed out on his chance to be at UFC 200. J Daniel Cormier and John Jones didn't miss a beat. They jumped right on the opportunity. They didn't hesitate at all. Uh, and so you're asking me, well, what kind of a financial hit did they take? I don't know that they're taking too much of one. It is true that Connor versus Diaz on a UFC 200 card is a particular unique kind of measurement or a magic, I should say, that's more than the sum of its parts. In other words, you're eventually going to get Connor back this year. You might get Nate Diaz back at some point this year. Um, Connor, whenever he returns, will do big pay-per-view buys. Nate, whenever he comes back, will at least be bigger than what he once was. There are other big pay-per-views this year that he either will be on or Conor McGregor will make big. Um, so in some sense, the UFC is taking a financial hit. But I, I don't – because, again, it would be special if all those things were tied together in terms of a casual hook. But what the UFC is probably saying is, look at this 200 card. It's phenomenal. We're going to have a big card at 205, likely with Rousey's return. Let's say Conor McGregor fights at 201 or 202. That might get married with a Robbie Lawler title fight. Um, all of these will be big. All of these will be big. There's no boycott of the product. There might be slightly less casual fans being brought in, but 200 is still going to sell really well. You know, that's what the UFC is probably saying here. And more importantly, the thing that they you can't really put a dollar sign on um, if you're the UFC anyway, is the order of things is preserved. Conor McGregor is the biggest star in the sport. He made the company a ton of money. I thought his concerns were totally reasonable. I mean, functionally, what's the difference between him missing that presser and then now announcing Jones Cormier 2 on, in New York today? Conor said he would be here by Wednesday. Jones and Cormier weren't promoting their fight last week in Vegas on Friday. There's functionally no difference. Like it, it, it was, it was. It's, it's very much in some ways irrational to deny Connor some of his claims, other than to preserve the order of things. And then when they go to Wednesday, Connor's not here. They announce a new one, and they just go on about their day. So he very much overplayed his hand in this one. As much leverage as he has, as long as the UFC can pivot from one main event headliner to another, I don't really know what kind of leverage any one fighter really has, to be honest even one as big as Conor McGregor. Uh, organizationally, they don't stop moving. They don't stop operating. If a fighter boycotts, that's just on the fighter. That's not on the organization. The organization has a number of other assets that they can use and, le and, and leverage for their own purposes. Um, so how much of a hit are they going to take? Yeah, probably in aggregate over the course of the year, let's say 500,000 pay-per-view buys. And that's a lot. Or not five hundred thousand. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no. Let's say five. Let's say five hundred thousand, right? Um, something like that. Let's say five. Let's say even seven hundred thousand, and that's a lot. But if you ask the UFC, what is the cost you'd be willing to pay to preserve the order of UFC first, fighter second? I bet you it's a lot more than five hundred thousand pay per view buys. I bet you it's a lot more than that. So to them, you know, there might be this upfront loss in terms of that, but the long term gain of preserving the order. Still pretty high, it looks like to me. That's a high priority and a high cost they're willing to pay. Um, and because they're really not going to lose any money, it's not like they're going to be in like a desperate dire straits. They've got a tremendous UFC 200 card here. They've got a tremendous 198 card. UFC 205 is probably going to be tremendous, and who knows what they're going to do with you know one, two, three, and four. We'll see how that goes, but you get the idea. They've they've got a lot of options. 
They've got a lot of options. Now, things could get complicated if Jones and DC fall out um, from injury prior to that, or if Jones has some sort of problem with his probation. That could be complicating. That would that would that would really strengthen McGregor's case, right? Okay, I can agree with that. But as it stands now, um, you can say what you want. Like I am saying about the what, what what is the functional difference of him skipping that press conference on Wednesday and then waiting to announce Jones Cormier on this Wednesday when Conor McGregor would have been here anyway? None, zero, totally none. Plus, you had all the stuff he was promoting anyway. Plus, he would have had Conor. You see how boring I was on Good Morning America today? It was so boring. Imagine if Connor had been there. So, like, rationally speaking, you know, it, this was this super weird decision by UFC, except that pecking order got preserved. And I don't know you can put a price on that. Someone says, do you think UFC will pull something incredible out of the bag for UFC 200? Personally, I will be a bit disappointed if it is Jones versus DC too. Y'all all say that, but y'all none of y'all are going to boycott it, man. Very few of you. That card's going to sell really well. That whole weekend, assuming the fights you know relatively stay in place, there aren't too many injuries. It's going to be a huge week and a huge weekend. <laughs> They've got the fans by the balls. Y'all are just too much of addicts to ever say no. You know, y'all are just too much committed to the product generally. You're 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 UFC fans first, really. You have you have loyalties to other fighters, uh, for sure. But th this idea that there's oh boycott UFC because of Stitch, none of y'all boycotted. Not enough to matter. Um, boycott because of you know Burt Watson. None of y'all, even Conor McGregor. Um, the UFC's not dependent on the Irish for pay per view buys. So. Um, so someone asks here, was pulling Connor from UFC 200 good business? We've accused the UFC of cutting off their nose to spite their face, but could it be that pulling Connor from 200 was actually good business? Hear me out. All right, let's see what you have to say. Connor is going to sell regardless of the pay-per-view number. 196 did 1.5 million pay-per-view buys. Could it be that UFC became increasingly averse to putting all their eggs in one basket by placing their biggest star in a show that is going to sell no matter what? UFC 200, the show... That is 12 months in the making and the only show that sells itself. Is it possible that a combination of 200 headlined by DC and Jones and UFC 202 headlined by Connor does better than the converse? No, it does not do better. It definitely does worse. However, the question is su such that it is so much worse that it's worth reversing course. Probably not. The UFC is smarter than we often give them credit. I think there is some merit to the argument that they don't want to set a precedent with their superstars. But I also think that ultimately putting their biggest star in a less glamorous pay-per-view was the smartest business decision. Well, I won't go that far. They didn't do it because it made more business sense in the short run. It made business sense in the long run about the pecking order of things. But again, the Nate Diaz, Conor McGregor magic in terms of the casual fan hook on a UFC 200 card just days after the 4th of July, that's a, that's a special moment in time that you have to capture. And they lose that, no doubt about it. Even if the other pieces... There's another pay-per-view. There's another Conor McGregor fight. There's another Nate Diaz fight. Or even if they do a Conor McGregor-Nate Diaz rematch down the line, it's not the same as, as hot as it is this moment in time. There's always this timing, this magic you always want to take advantage of in the fight game. And they do lose that. So, no, they wouldn't be more. Um, but I think the UFC is saying whatever we're giving up in the short run and pay-per-view buys, 
we're gaining in the long run by making sure that people know we cannot be leveraged. You know, we cannot be leveraged. That's really their attitude. Um, this should be a wake up call, I think, to fighters, because even when your demands are completely reasonable um, and you've done a tremendous amount for the company, we talked about it. What is the difference between what McGregor did and what Mitch Rion did? It's a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. If you don't get that stuff up front in writing, you don't it might as well just not be there. Not saying that they won't do you a solid, not saying that they're not out here to make sure no one ever gets done favors. Just that whenever you think you're owed, whenever you want to cash in that favor, that if it doesn't work for them, it, they they will just move on without you. They pulled him off the biggest fight card of the year in a rematch that, in terms of a casual fan interest, couldn't be higher or there was no fight they could have done more than that one. Um, and they walked away from it super quick. Let that be a lesson to you. I told you, man, these are tough customers. These are tough customers. Well, I asked a question about IBJJF. Um, I'm going to skip it because I answered it last week. Everyone still on the sub only is better than non sub only. Okay, sure. You keep thinking that. You keep watching that. The worlds are next month. I highly encourage you to watch because that's the best tournament all year. That's the best. That's the best jujitsu event all year anywhere. Period. It has no equal, and that's true. Not merely for the black belt division, but for the brown and the purple and even the blue. The white belt stuff you can skip, but. Uh, and you could probably skip the blue belt stuff too, but the purple belt division and all the way on up, you get all of that. That is so much infinitely more interesting. The tension of a clock ticking down and someone fighting for a sweep and getting it is, I don't like points only. You don't watch points only. What could you possibly tell me about points? Well, not points only. Of course you can submit someone to competition, but like every, t like, like without fail, every time I talk to someone who's like, again, Eddie Bravo obviously knows a ton of, I mean, an infinite amount about jiu-jitsu and he doesn't like points. Okay, fair enough. And there are plenty, plenty of criticisms to make about points that refereeing in particular is really bad in points. Um, jiu-jitsu, I completely agree. However, the idea that, you know, giving up mount on purpose because you want to go for an ankle lock is combat realistic is so not true. Both, both sides have combat realism problems. I'd argue sub only has more of them uh and you know the level of competition in ibjjf worlds is the highest so whatever you think about what polaris is doing and i like polaris and whatever you think about ebi is doing and i like ebi level of competition cannot possibly touch what you're going to see at the world and, and through through a number of divisions um and every time i talk to someone who's like i really hate points really what was the last points tournament you sat down and watched? Oh, I'm sorry. What, what did you say? You say you haven't. You're just buying into what everyone tells you because it sounds right. Okay. The oblique kick. Where do you stand on the use of this technique? During the main event on Saturday, I watched as Jones le leapt. You put leaped into one. Uh, it didn't land, but the potential for what could have been ma made made me wince. Should it be looked at closer or should we wait until someone has a career-ending injury? Um, I'm not here to tell you that the oblique kick is something that I personally think highly of or that I like um, seeing used. 
But I find it very odd that we see jaws broken, orbital bones broken, guys get concussed, get literally traumatic brain injury, and everyone's worried about an oblique kick that we have yet to see cause any really devastating damage in MMA. Uh, I am certainly with you that it has the potential to do a fair bit of damage. Seeing a guy's knee get torqued is bad. I've seen ACLs get torn from outside leg kicks. So it's not like outside leg kicks can't do all kinds of damage to one's knee. They can. They can do a ton of damage. It's not merely um, the damage they can do to the thigh, which, by the way, they can do all kinds of damage to the thigh itself um, in terms of the muscle, muscle tissue and how it regrows and how it functions after the fact. I think there's a lot of just selectivity about, well, don't attack a guy's joints. What is the difference between someone getting hit with an oblique kick and someone letting an arm bar go too long? Someone that willingly lets them their arm get broken. Um, you know, <laughs> and if it were true that these oblique kicks were so dangerous that uh, you'd see guys getting their knees just blown out all the time, well, then we could talk about it. But, I, you know, at least in the UFC, you know, I've seen guys get their knees tweaked a little bit, but I've yet to hear anyone be like, well, I had to sit out all these months as a consequence of it. Um, Owen St. Peru wasn't really complaining after the fact. Um, I think there's just a lot of selective reasoning about it. I'm not saying that the concern about the oblique kick is misplaced necessarily. Again, it does look bad. It's something we should pay attention to and see how things evolve because maybe it's not bad right now because it's not used that much. Maybe if it was used more, we'd see more injuries. So it's, it's worth paying attention to. I don't really mean to dismiss it as such, but among the current use of weaponry that we see in the octagon, um, the amount of damage that that causes seems to be quite low uh, on its own terms, and then especially relative to other things that we see that cause much more severe injuries on a routine basis. Um, so I have a very hard time getting up in arms about the oblique kick as it currently stands. If things change, certainly we can take a look at that. But right now, the oblique kick is seems to me, of all of the things that can do damage to someone, in MMA is a fairly low priority for me. I think a lot of it is people just still have a, they have a visual hang up about it because um, it looks bad. And there's a little bit of, you know, John Jones, eye poke, knee blowout kind of reputation. He still hasn't quite shaken. But, you know, don't be that guy or that girl who tries to argue the, the, safe, the relative safety of MMA and says, you know, look, people die in NASCAR. You just don't you know, you don't you don't see their body get burned or crushed or uh, mangled in that car. There's a sanitizing effect by them being shielded in that thing in terms of the, the public. You know, you see every cut in MMA. You see every knockout. You see it very viscerally. And so people have this reaction to MMA, even though, you know, NASCAR has had uh, deaths that the UFC never has. Now, NASCAR has been around a little bit longer, too, but you get the idea that there's this reaction because you don't quite have to bear witness to it. You aren't as horrified by it, even if in an abstract way, you can argue that more people die uh, doing that or high school football or whatever the case may be. You're doing the same thing with the oblique kick. From a statistical point of view, the oblique kick is not wreaking havoc across the UFC. It is not something that's ending careers or shortening them or any of that, especially relative to brain injury guys are getting you know, someone on the Reddit the other day posted that one of my favorite fights ever, Brody, um, Rory Markham versus Brody Farber. Brody Farber gets stretched out from a monster head kick. Uh, I'm not saying he necessarily would prefer that over uh, an oblique kick, but I'm guessing 
given what we know about brain injury and given what we know so far about oblique kicks, you probably take the oblique kick at this point. Uh, and I realize that California has some issues with it, but um, and that's fine. If states want to ban it, ban it. It's not like the end of the world. It's not. It, it, this is not some common. They're not taking away the jab. This is not some super common weapon everyone's using. That's sort of my point. Someone says, someone's asking, how is it different from a head strike? And then the other person says, if I front kick you in the knee 18 times, you are going to have pain for the rest of your life. Well, that's just a big assumption based on no fact whatsoever. Every day you are going to feel it and limp around like a useless F. If you knock me out with a head punch, I will recover and be right within two weeks. Okay, well, you have surrendered the right to make that argument because you don't know what you're talking about. Love you. Um... Do you think John Jones has the striking skill worthy of the pound for pound number one fighter against OSP? He was so afraid of getting knocked out and that led to a very, very boring game. Well, if we're going to assess someone's pound for pound, uh, status, we don't assess it merely on one set of skills. We also don't measure it on one fight. We measure it across their body of work. Um, certainly his striking in that fight was not overwhelmingly awesome. I will grant you. Um, again, it seemed not bad, just half of what it could have been, maybe like 40% of what it could have been. Um, but if, and again, pound for pound is sort of like this fun debate that ultimately leads to nowhere. But, um, if we're going to have it because we're trying to flush out what it means to be the best fighter alive and what you're looking for, that is what they're currently doing. You know, so the last fight does matter. But you're looking at the larger body of work. And the larger body of work in terms of John Jones' striking is, you know, does he have major crucial knockout power? No, he does not. Um, does he have this, like, wide array of Edson Barboza, you know, fluid striking from all different kinds of weapons? Two hands, two knees, two elbows, two shins. And then uses them all effectively in super quick succession. Um to attack all different parts of the body. No, not he doesn't. He's not quite like that, obviously. Um, but in the larger totality of his game, he does any number of different things. Barboza doesn't. And I think to, uh, in a very realistic way, he just has um, such a dominant skill set in that regard and a, and a, and a really helpful, help, helpful body type. Um, that, that when you measure the, the larger game, when you look at the larger picture, then you could begin to say, okay. But if you, like, being pound for pound does not mean you're the best striker and you're the best wrestler and you're the best guy jiu-jitsu and you're the strongest and you have the best cardio. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, there might be areas where someone else is better than you. You know, Demetrius Johnson is hell on wheels, but he's not better than Demi and Maya on the ground. He's not. You know, there's just no way. And he's a tremendous striker, but as in pure striking terms, in pure striking terms, you know, he's not better than Edson Barboza. He's not. Um, no, he's a very good wrestler. He's a very good clinch fighter. He's a very good striker. He's really good on the ground. He's got, he's really, really good at a lot of things. But this idea you have to be the very best at it in that one department, otherwise it doesn't count. I, I, I don't share that analysis. As crazy as the matchup sounds, I was hoping for Diaz versus Lawler fight at UFC 200. 
even though Lawler would likely be a clear favorite due to his size advantage, <clears throat> do you think that a title defense against Nate would have been an intriguing enough bout to headline 200 or is Jones, Jones Cormier too simply too big of a fight to have passed up at the event? Uh, Diaz Lawler has potential to be an all-time great battle for as long as it would last. Yeah, it's a problem, though, because it, there's a welterweight queue already in place. Whether Tyron Woodley gets it or anyone else, I don't know. Seems like he's going to get it since you've got Hendricks versus Gastelum and now Rory versus um, Thompson. So it would kind of disrupt the queue. It would kind of disrupt the flow of the um, division. I think it would be a fun fight. I don't know if it would be all that awesome, but I think it would be a fun fight. As long as it lasted, you're right. But no, I don't think Lawler Diaz 2 is is the same as Jones versus Cormier 2. Um, just the analytics from what I see online about what Diaz does. Diaz definitely is a needle mover in the right circumstances and is much more of one than he ever has been. Um, and certainly Lawler is a champion. But Jones should not be discounted, even though the OSP fight was very lackluster both in, in Las Vegas in terms of the interest and then to, to an extent online. Um, that's still bigger. It's still much bigger. Jones is a big star in the sport, you know. If you, if you ever try to understand, like, a simple way to measure that, and this is overly simplistic and not representative of the full picture, but as a helpful guide, as a helpful signpost a little bit, again, it's not always going to be this way, but just go look at their Facebook pages. Look and see who has the most likes. Again, let me be clear. This is in hardly any explanatory way, and there will be people, like, some of Rousey's opponents who have big Facebook followings that won't necessarily translate to pay-per-view buys. But if you're over 2 million likes on Facebook, and I think Jose Aldo has almost a million or more. So again, it doesn't always work out this way. But but generally speaking, at least a little bit, if you're over 2 million likes on Facebook um, and, and you're not like, say, Anderson Silva, who's a little bit past his prime, or actually a lot past his prime, um, that should tell you a little bit about where their star power is. John Jones is not a huge, major, unbelievable Conor McGregor type star, but he is much more than either Nate or Lawler or Nate and Lawler put together. Uh, post EBI, six thoughts. Did you watch the event? Uh, a little bit of it, not much. Did anyone or anything in particular stand out? Uh, yeah, Gordon Ryan is a beast, but we already knew that. Michael Chandler versus Josh Thompson. How do you see this fight going down? If Chandler wins, what is next for him? Man, I really don't know. This is two guys, a lot of question marks about him. Um, you got Josh Thompson, who looked good in his last fight, but not amazing. Bit of a tune-up fight for him. Um, Chandler coming off that Derek Compost win. Was, was that the last Michael Chandler fight, or am I missing one? I think that's the last one, I think. See. No, the David Rickles fight, excuse me, but that went to the second round. I'm not sure I even saw that fight. Um, so he's had a couple of good tune-up fights. Thompson had the tough loss against Ferguson, rebounded twice now against Mike Bronzoulis and Pablo Vijaseca. Um, yeah, I guess I favor Chandler in that one, but I don't know how much. Uh, Chandler's a really dominant wrestler, still has a lot of offense. Still has a lot of go. He's going to have to control and smother and get Thompson backing up, um, get Thompson to react defensively because, you know, Josh Thompson, whatever you want to say about how old he is and wherever he is in his game, he's got a lot of different offensive tools. 
you know, he was one of the first prototype wrestle boxer, um, but wrestle kickboxers, you know, and he may have gotten knocked out by Eves in one of the greatest lightweight fights ever. Well, finishes ever anyway, but, um, he's still got a lot of good, he's still, he's well, he's a well-rounded fighter. You know, he's a very well-rounded fighter. So I guess I favor Chandler, but Chandler's, you know, been hurt so many times and he's been rocked so many times. And, you know, you saw what happened against Will Brooks. To the extent that Thompson can slow the fight down and methodically apply his offense, I like his chances. To the extent Chandler can speed the bout up and make it about just the ferocity and the consistent application of his offense, I like his chances. And so I guess overall I favor Chandler, but that's a real tough fight with a lot of interesting results as a consequence. Uh, Meta Morris, now that EBI has Fight Pass as a distribution channel and so much goodwill from the BJJ community, do you think Meta Morris has a chance of making a comeback? Um, well, they're supposed to have that July event, although there's virtually no buzz for it, and there's still a lot of questions about whether people are actually even signed to compete on it. I haven't even seen any yet. Let's go to our YouTube channel. It's usually a good chance to... I could just be skipping things. Yeah, they put up that trailer about a month ago, and they've been quiet ever since. Uh, maybe it's because they're collecting or producing assets. I don't really know. Um, but they've, you know, uh, obviously Halleck is a bit of a controversial uh, figurehead there. Um, there are still some issues about the the Challenger series that they tried to launch and whether people got paid and whether schools were properly compensated for being used. Um, a lot of the events were canceled. They burned a lot of goodwill as a consequence of that. Um, so they've got some work to do irrespective of EBI or whatever EBI is or isn't doing. Um, they made some enemies on their own terms. Um, and that's their problem. So I don't know if, so it's not, it's not EBI getting on fight pass or Metamorphs can succeed with or without fight pass. It can su succeed on their own. Um, you know, they've got an interesting vision and they've got the know-how to get it done for the most part, I think, but um, they've got a controversial figurehead and they've got a really, a bit of a checkered past more recently that I think is disturbing to people within the community. Luke, do you know if a fighter has ever punched Dana in the face? Um, I don't. I don't. I mean, he's talked about some have threatened him before. He's been open about that, but punched in the face? I don't know. Full guard in MMA. Are there any fighters at the elite level who are known for having an insane closed guard? Um, you could say Ben Saunders has an interesting closed guard, right? He's got one of those 10th planet closed guards. He can do a lot with it. Um, I actually think that Anthony Pettis isn't all that bad from it. I don't think he's got an insane closed guard. But you know he's got he's got some decent submission threat from it. I'm trying to think like who else has like a really good closed guard. Not a lot of guys play from it. Um, Carlos Condit has an interesting closed guard. Now not really a closed guard, but interesting. You know from from butterfly to um, to um, he's got good guard work generally. That's the way I would put it. Uh, BJ Penn has an entire book on the closed guard. He's got an excellent closed guard as well. That you may not have seen it more recently that he's, you know, kept up with it is one thing, but um, 
you know, there was a time and place, man, where you got stuck in BJ Penn's closed guard and you were you were having a lot of problems. So those are those are some names that stand out to me right away. Um Trying to think of who else like you don't really see a lot. I mean, it's a bit of a lost art in modern MMA, isn't it? Um, I'm sure if you wanted to, Gunnar Nelson would have a pretty good close guard. Um, let's see, who else has a really good closed guard? I'm trying to think. Um, I'm sure Demi and Maya does too, but that's not particularly the kind of game that he plays. Jacques Ray has a good close guard. Jacques Ray's got an excellent close guard. Um, some names like that. Yeah, but you should check out BJ Penn's book on the closed guard. I mean, you couldn't, you can't imagine all the different techniques that he has. It's just a complete encyclopedia of closed guard attacks. <clears throat> Mighty Mouse, is it time for DJ to call out a name or two from the division above? To either fight at 135 or at a catch weight of 130, whilst the flyweight division works itself out a new challenger or two. Cruz, Dillashaw, and Faber would be really fun fights. That's what I think the path should be. And this is, I think, one of the arguments that hurts. Uh, again, I think it's very debatable. Um, if you if you believe that Demetrius Johnson is the best fighter on earth and is the best pound for pound fighter, I think you can make a case for that. It's not one I particularly agree with, but. I recognize that his achievements are so great that it's worth the, the, the that the discussion is is not crazy at all. So, for me, um, one of the arguments that hurts that though is that everyone says for a number of his title defenses, certainly not against Benavidez or McCall, um, but you know if you're talking about Moraga, Cejudo, Horaguchi. Names like that. Everyone was saying, well, this guy got you know a title shot way too early. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that a division is thick and deep and all these other things and then say, well, guys are getting title shots too quickly because there's no one else in front of them. Right? I mean, think about what it takes to get a title shot, say, a lightweight. Think about how many murderers you have to get past just to get to the final boss uh, a while a very long while. That's a very, very stacked division, right? There's a lot of things you have to do. You don't, no one gets a title shot of lightweight because it's like, well, who else is he going to fight? You don't want to kill off other contenders. There's a million guys you have to get through at flyweight. There's none of that. It's a new division and there's just not enough people in it cycling in and cycling out. Um, and dynamics changing for that to happen. Um, you've even got guys who have lost to Demetrius Johnson twice still hanging around the top of the division. I mean, that tells that's a problem. That's a problem, right? So that hurts his argument a little bit. But that, to me, is all the more reason that um, he should go to 135. I don't think going to 135 would, quote-unquote, prove, you know, he's the best pound-for-pound fighter, whether he wins or he loses. Um, you know, fighting out of your weight class is not a natural thing, right? You have a certain size, and, you're, and that's basically where you're going to be your best at. Once you begin to change that, yeah, I guess if you're really, really, really insanely good, you might be able to work it out, but size matters in the sport. It really does. And so for me, even if he lost at 135, I don't think that would hurt his argument at all. But I'm not, you know, I guess it would help it, but that's not really what matters to me. What matters to me is where do you fine-tune everything? But sure, but 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 to, for the division's sake, going to 135 and taking a fight or, or two up there, letting everything breathe um down at flyweight, I think that's the way to go. As long as the problem is, oh man, DJ's here, we gotta give him somebody. 
um, then that then then you're going to keep reliving the scenario. The, the the what you need to happen is to say, okay, somebody emerges, and maybe that's Benavides for a third time. I wouldn't be opposed to that, but after Benavides, then what? You know, there needs to be a cue that that picks up. And uh, I think the best way to do that is for DJ to move up just for a little bit. And I know he doesn't necessarily want to do that. I don't think he wants to potentially risk getting a loss while he's on this Anderson Silva win streak um, for title defenses. But because it wouldn't impact it for the for the title defenses of flyweight. But you know who wants to really go and lose and have to come back and things like that. So I understand his position as well. But you know this is this is where we're at, man. We're just at a place where there's just not enough people. And to me. Uh, going up to 135 and I'm not saying getting a title shot fighting some other contenders I think that would be kind of fun you know maybe fight John Lineker at 135 that'd be kind of crazy right so that's kind of what I'm thinking I'm you know if he wants to go for a super fight then go for a super fight but if he's like well I don't want to lose then go back to flyweight and defend my title then give him a decent contender let me look at the bantamweight contender let's see who's these rankings are crazy but just to see who's in the top of that Who's in the mix? Aljamain Sterling, Rafael Sunsell, Michael McDonald. I mean, the Michael McDonald fight versus DJ would be awesome. Thomas Almeida, Brian Caraway, Mizugaki, John Dodson, Johnny Eduardo, John Lineker, Frankie Sines, Jimmy Rivera, Eddie Wineland. There's a lot of good ones you can do. The Faber fight I like a lot too. There's a lot you can do. Anthony Pettis, man, unbelievable. In all seriousness, can we forget about Pettis being championship caliber anymore? After each loss, he talks about stuff he has changed, like attitude, work rate, even gyms for this past fight, and he still he is losing. Basically, has he had his day in the sun? Yeah, I don't know. Man, I don't know. I don't know what is happening there at all. I don't I don't understand it. I don't um any number of theories. One is that, um, you know, the, the loss to Dos Anjos was so, yeah, was so bad that he couldn't recover from it. That's one theory. I think another theory is, um, um, some have said he was never that good. There's that. Some have obviously suggested post USADA, he's not the same. Um, I don't know what the answer is. My inclination right now is that I think the thing, and I I don't know this to be sure. I, I'm just trying to make sense of the universe, like everyone else is. I really wonder if that beating Dos Anjos gave him was more than we accounted for. Um, it's a five round shellacking he took, um, in all positions in all phases of the game, and I wonder if he ever really recovered from that. So there's that. Um, I had Brian Stan on my radio show on Monday. Brian Stan doesn't believe any of that. Brian Stan just believes that there's still work to be done. That what happened was Pettis' skill set was way out in front of everyone's for a while. And then everyone has caught up to him and he hasn't continued to keep pace with that adaptation. And so that's what you're seeing. Maybe that's it. Um, so I'm not ready to write him off just yet. But I guess I am as equally troubled as the rest of you are because I can't tell if he's just been hammered into something different by the likes of Dos Anjos and others or um, or if Brian Stan is right and this is just a matter of you have not kept up with 
the early advantages you had. You need to get back to that and really innovate your game and then come back. Maybe that's the case. Um, we've seen guys have career slumps and come back. You know, we've seen guys have career slumps late in their 30s and come back. So to write off Pettis, I think, would probably be premature. But if you're like me, you've got a lot of questions about, geez, man, where is this really headed? I don't – this is not going in the right direction, and it doesn't appear even with, as you noted, changes being made to what he's doing in any number of different capacities, this having a real effect on the outcome. You know, look, I thought he did look better in one respect. I thought his movement was a lot better, right, in that Pettis fight – or excuse me, in the uh, Alvarez fight. He was real stationary. Even in the Dos Anjos fight, he was on the back foot the whole time. Now, it's credit to Dos Anjos, but still. But this time, he was moving around a lot, switching stances, constantly being on his horse, finding the right range for the most part. He just couldn't seemingly pull the trigger enough. Um, as kind of Rebush noted, he was getting met with jabs before he could ever really get something going. I thought he was inaccurate. Um, I don't know. It's a That's a mystery to me that we have not – we have – None of us have really figured it out because he doesn't look like a, you know, a late stage Kermit Centron who was just uh, totally shot. That's not how he looks. But, but you know, maybe maybe that beating Dosan just gave him really changed him. I don't know. I don't know. Someone says, Luke, why didn't you ask any razor sharp questions during the 200 press conference last Friday? You could have backed up Ariel. Well, I was in the Mandalay Bay doing my radio show. So, I don't know. Spam in the comments section. Are you guys on this? It's annoying. A lot of spam here during the events. Yeah, well, we do our best to combat it, but that should tell you how bad it, the problem is because that's how much trouble we have dealing with it. There's a lot of it. Uh, UFC 205, do you really think Dana will keep Connor off of 205? Surely there will come a point when they have to think about revenue as opposed to teaching a fighter a lesson. Um. It's a good question. I wonder if they're doing it less so to teach him a lesson, but more to say if the plan is to get Rousey in November, putting Connor there is just unbelievable overkill. Now, they could do it and have a big event there, and it would be a massive, massive moment. And, in fact, maybe they'll just end up doing that. Again, Rousey separately from McGregor, they're both going to sell big, special magic, or um, is the question – that you actually kill the magic because you're getting the same kind of people anyway. I don't know. It's an interesting kind of question. That would be the thinking, I think, more than you know, punitive action um, to keep them off that card. It might just be more that, well, we'll have 200, and then we'll have 205. Let's say with Rousey, we need to put headliners on one, two, three, and four. You know, how many other headlining choices do we have for pay per view? So that could be the thinking as well. Less than you know, F Conor McGregor, we're going to teach him a lesson. Uh, they've already taught him one. I mean, if he didn't get the message at this point, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying he should relent. I'm not. I understand his position completely. I think it's completely reasonable. And if you look at the contract language, it actually says a reasonable amount of um, media promoting has to be done. What is, a, what is a reasonable amount? To me, it seems like functionally, whatever, if he had flown here today, that would have been no different as I noted it before than what you really basically got out of Jones and Cormier being announced this late, doing it on this day. What was what was all that hassle for? And I also think there is a cost to UFC eventually when you have this relationship with your talent where 
even the very special ones, even the top talent, and you don't budge for them at all, you know, that definitely sows seeds of discontent over time. So there is that cost to pay. Um, but sowing seeds of discontent, is that really the same as planting seeds of unionization? Maybe, maybe not. It's not really clear. So far, it hasn't been, you know. Um, yeah, they're getting sued by all, some other fighters that used to compete for them, but um, we'll see what happens with that case. But that's that's more a claim about UFC being a monopoly more than it is um, fighter harm. If you had read, uh, I believe, uh, Paul Gift's interview with the previous head of the FTC, he sort of uh, underlined that point. I mean, some of the lawsuit is about harm to fighters, but it's more about claims about the market generally. And uh, that's that's a very different issue than making it strictly about harms to fighters. Um, so we'll see, man. This is a, this is this thing is not over. And again, if Jones or Cormier gets injured and that fight falls through, I think then then Conor McGregor will to some extent have the last laugh. But if everything goes as planned, like it did around 194, this is a bitter pill for everyone to swallow. If if and this is why it's so like weird that all these fighters i mean i can't, i really have to say just take a moment to say i was shocked by what jose aldo said shocked completely shocked this guy who has had any number of disputes with ufc management and about being told what to do and a guy who said you can't make me do the iv testing and uh i mean you name it right you name it and then he goes out there and <laughs> and then he goes out there and says um You know, I made time to tour because I'm a I'm a I'm a model employee at UFC at Reebok. Like, like wow! Now you're the company guy. I mean, if you were the company guy all along, and that's just that's the way you go. Like Ronda Rousey's a company person, then it's whatever. I don't you know, it's not still not smart to go after another fighter trying to raise issues about fighter welfare, which is what that is. Everyone's like, this is about special treatment. Mm. In a way it is. Yes, it definitely is. But it's about more than that. It's about what you can get in terms of concessions at the negotiating table for what are frankly pretty reasonable demands. Um, it's about doing business on, on account of reasonability. And that trickles down to other fighters over, over time, at least to headliners. And um, which is you know which is part of fighter welfare, and then he comes out there and says and says that I found that stunning, stunning. You know all the claims he was making to me are really ring hollow now. All the things he was saying about you know I'm this and I'm that and um <laughs> wow what what a turnaround for for Jose Aldo, and probably not a great one either. You know. To, to now buddy up to the organization that you have basically kept at arm's distance um, or, you know, half arm's distance anyway, because your rival is having a moment where it could ultimately benefit you long-term, but there's a short-term gain for you. So you take that and not only do you take that, but then you use that to rub that in the face of the guy who's trying to do something for fighters. What a stunning, stunning moment for Jose Aldo. All the crazy things I saw last week, that was the number one craziest. Number one by far, a shocking turnaround that, I mean, it was like everything he had stood for previously meant nothing, you know.
Demian Maya versus Matt Brown. Early thoughts on this fight. If Maya wins, what would you like to see him fight next? What or who? I mean, because he could fight a bear. He could fight a tricycle. <laughs> um, he could fight Rich Piana, you know. God damn it. Um, so I had Matt Brown on my radio show. And Matt Brown basically said, uh, I took this fight because it's a bad matchup for me. Said it outright. Like, he even used those words. Um, which I found pretty interesting. Like, that's very much an old school mentality. So I asked him about it. I was like, in a day where... You know, look, ultimately, if you're a champion, right, you've got to fight top contenders. And over time, you can't really avoid that, right? It's not like Robbie Lawler's out there taking the easiest challenges. I mean, maybe maybe Carlos Condit wasn't necessarily what the consensus pick was, but that was that was a tough fight, right? And he'll face Tyron Woodley, who some had considered to be the top prospect or top uh, contender. Anyway, um, and his answer was, this is just how I'm built. This is how I got myself here. I'm not going to change it now that I'm here. You know, yes, I want the title. Yes, I want to be, you know, a fight for a title. And and it does cross my mind at times that the way in which I accept fights can hurt me in certain ways. He he, he basically conceded that point. But what he just said was, um, I like the challenge. If I win, it'll mean more to me. Uh, still thinks he's capable of winning it, obviously. And, um, and just wants, you know, wants to put himself in the fire. I don't know how you don't respect that. I don't know how on earth you can't respect that. What a what a tremendous attitude! Um, it's guys like that that make the look. I, I don't begrudge any fighter who takes. You know, these guys are husbands and wives, and you know they have kids and mortgages and everything else. They they got to make the right choices for themselves, and I completely understand that. I I, I won't get in the way of that, but I'll also I won't um, be hesitant to really applaud fighters like Matt Brown who take on risks. Uh, sometimes seemingly against their own self-interest, or at least, you know, certainly high risk, high reward. Um, Cause that has a lot of benefit for fans and the product generally too. Um, so I really, really, I really have a ton of respect for Matt Brown and what he's doing. And uh, I agree with his analysis though. It's a really tough matchup for him. Matt, uh, Demian Maya sticks to you like glue. He is hard to shake off. He is constantly advancing. He is a tough customer on the ground. His jujitsu is just so, like I mentioned before, sticky. Um, yeah, I like Demi and Maya's chances in that fight, but I have to say, if you're rooting for a guy in that one, I'm not telling you to root against Demi and Maya, but maybe there's a little extra twinkle in your eye for Matt Brown just because of the risk he's willing to assume and the things he's willing to do in the name of victory. Um, he keeps a certain element of the sport alive. He burns that torch for that old school mentality that, in many ways is outdated, but in some ways and in some circumstances, this being one of them really pays dividends back to the, um, back to the customer. Oh, and what should you get if he wins, man, <sighs> they're not going to give the winner of McDonald Thompson, the title shot. Then I guess the winner of that, um, maybe the winner of Hendricks Gastelum, something like that. <clears throat> the UFC wanted to use Connor outside of marquee events, marquee events like 200 MSG. Smart business, those events will sell regardless. But do you think the Connor, do I think the Connor 
like is he Donald Trump now? He's the Donald. Will comply to this strategy. How do you think his return will play out? Man, if I were him, I'm getting everything in writing. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I'm getting everything in writing. Because what basically Connor did was he hitched himself to one calendar event. 200. Right? Well, how, how smart is that? Because, again, they can go, oh, you're not really going to play ball. Will you play ball? Will you play ball? You will? Okay, come along. Bye, Connor. That's what they did. But over a calendar year, the need for him grows stronger. You know, the UFC has certainly lobbied to get St. Pierre to come back a number of times. Um, remember, in the absence of when the Brock Lesnar era was over, there weren't a lot of guys that could push pay-per-views very, very high. St. Pierre was one of them. Him retiring was a bit of a blow. Um, although it happened very, very late in the, in the you know, after Lesnar years, literally. But you get the idea. And uh, he became much more valuable in that regard. So if Ronda walks away after 205, let's just say as an example, Conor McGregor um, becomes much more valuable as a headliner. And again, you know, Jones and his probation seems seems like everything's in order. He's got a he's got a driver. Seems to have understood that he came within a hairs. Uh, what do you want to say? He came within a, the, the 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 most finite of measurements from being put back in in jail in a real way, and seems to have turned that corner. Okay, good. But you know, we're talking about he's going to be in probation for what a while. Um, he has to stay out of trouble that entire time. Um, I'm certainly not wishing ill upon him, or I, nor am I suggesting it is inevitable that uh, he will fail the terms of his probation. What I am telling you is that is simply an uncertain circumstance. Bad things happen, accidents happen, weird things happen, people make bad choices. So if Ronda leaves and Jones can't maintain the status of his probation, uh, Connor's status as a headliner generally increases and so maybe he'll get something back on the other end right they don't want their headliners sitting around even if they have other headliners to use so the long game here in terms of Connor's return um, he'll have some concessions but he pegged it all at 200 I think that was a bit of a problem Uh, UFC 198 Brazil. That's what they should just call it. What numbers does this card do pay-per-view wise? Some big fun names in this card. Verdum, Jacare, Belfort, Silva, Cyborg, Shogun. It's tough. Uh, I think it probably does okay, not great. Not because the card's not great. It's amazing. But it's a bit of a hardcore fan's delight. Um, it's essentially a celebration of all things Brazil. And it's got, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a title fight on it. And it's got Anderson Silva on it. But his drawing power isn't what it used to be. You know, Rousey was able to sell in Brazil because Rousey's amazing, but no one else can really do that except maybe Connor if Connor fought in Brazil, something like that. Uh, but he's not on that card either. So I think it has enough big names to get some casual fan interest. But anytime you leave the United States and put on a pay per view, it becomes harder and harder to sell. So um, I think it'll do okay, maybe even good, but I don't think it'll do very, I don't think it will do like well or amazing by any stretch. I think people should have some modest expectations from a pay per view standpoint about what this is going to do. Uh, just an idea. Uh, Tim Kennedy has a show called Hunting Hitler where they travel to South America with a camera crew searching for war criminals. Okay. Uh, maybe SB Nation and Vox Media can find Hunting Rebney with you as the lead. Are you really comparing Rebney to a... 
a Nazi war criminal. Uh, and they ask, what does his non-compete clause end? I will pass on that. Uh, the Alley Act. Can you explain what it is and the impact it will have on MMA? Um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hook y'all up because I had a guy on my show talk about it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll link this up for you because he answers this question really well, better than I could. There we go. Listen here. Bloop. There we are. Um, essentially, what this do- what this act does is it essentially uh, it levels the playing field to an extent um, for prize fighters. So, for example, the um, financial totals of an event have to be revealed to uh, the fighter on the card, right? So um, you can know how much money they're making, where they're making it from. This gives you a sense of your bargaining power, right? Um, that's a, one among a number of other protections. It, it prevents um, someone in a direct sense. Now, you can be a you know low-level regional um, fight promoter, and then you can manage high-level fighters, provided there's basically, not quite, but basically no con- um, connectivity between the two, right? Um, but you can't be a manager and a promoter at the same time, especially not for like I'd say the same event. That would be very, very weird and uh, and boxing illegal. Now they call it, they make the demarcation ten round events, so essentially non championship fights. Uh, but you get the idea. So there would have to be some rewriting of the language to make it work for MMA purposes and to fit that context. Which is why I asked John McCain, like, you know, we don't really have any legislation yet, so it's hard to say would you support that. Well, what what does the legislation say? But he seemed he seemed relatively well. No, I shouldn't say relatively. He seemed very effusive with praise and support for um, whatever Representative Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma is going to do. So I put um, okay. And then you, my friend. Um, what Mark Wayne Mullen is going to do. So we'll see what the legislation ultimately looks like. Those are just two provisions. There are a number of other ones, but this is essentially an act to protect boxers and make sure that uh, you know managers have a fiduciary duty to the fighter itself, uh, to the fighter himself or herself, right? Which you may not, which you may think is obvious. It is not. There's a legal com- compulsion under that regard to do that. So there's a lot of moving pieces that it does. Uh, impact of powerlifting. What were your thoughts on the comments made by Greg Jackson regarding powerlifting and its impact on John Jones's performance? Well, this is a bit out of my league because I am not a strength and conditioning coach. So I have very little to say in the way of helpful information here, except that I'll probably just, you know, I'll just add a little bit of perspective here. Um, I thought that you could tell that Jones had added muscle, but not a tremendous amount, mostly in his back. You could sort of see the the lats, uh, especially as it neared his lower back in a way you couldn't before. He had to see, he had, you know, he had bigger, looked like he'd been doing some face pulls, you know, that's not powerlifting, but you get the idea. He had um, certainly bigger traps. Um, he just looked a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more muscular in the shoulder and back area. So there was that, um, I didn't ask after the fight, he didn't claim he was tired. Um, I didn't see him get tired in that fight. He seemed to have plenty of energy in that fourth round. Um, here's what I, here's the only thing I can say. Greg Jackson knows John Jones better than I do. I don't know what he saw. I'd like to talk to him about it. We tried to get him on my show. He didn't respond to any text. So. 
you know, if he doesn't come on, I can't ask him about it. Um, so there's that. But um, I, it didn't seem to me that was a problem. Um, maybe it was. It seemed to me it was. It didn't hurt his game in any capacity, really, that I could detect. Um, after the fight, that wasn't a big talking point. Um, maybe he has an axe to grind with powerlifting, and he wanted to see things that weren't necessarily there. Or, again, maybe he knows John better than we do, and he saw things that we didn't pick up on. So there's that, too. Um, but, and I saw Nick Kersen, who is, I think, Rafael DeSanjos' uh, strength coach, um, also so essentially sort of sign on to that. But I've seen other strength coaches say the opposite. It's not like there's a you know unanimous consensus among strength and conditioning coaches that powerlifting in whatever capacity he really used it during camp um, was bad for him. So let's be clear about that. There's a number of opinions about this. But I'll just say that ultimately whatever happens, my general sense of things is that it's really dependent on the person. Um, you know, Marcelo Garcia, when he was in his prime, he never did strength and conditioning routines. He always said, I just do more jujitsu. And you see a lot of jujitsu guys really reject that. Uh, you see a lot of guys saying, well, yeah, I do a lot of jujitsu, but then I add in, a, you know, a powerlifting routine or a strength and conditioning routine um, separate to that. Uh, and they say they feel the benefits. So uh, there's very much, a, a, you know, and, and what exactly is he doing with the powerlifting? Was it powerlifting generally or the particular powerlifting routine he was doing? Um, was it too much powerlifting? Was it, um, can we dial it back but not get rid of it? So there's a lot of moving questions here, uh, or, or, you know, moving parts and open questions here about what should happen. This is not an area of expertise I can really speak to. In my own athletic life, you know, just doing more of the same activity uh, did not help me. I've always, 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 always had to complement whatever I did um, with the strength training routine. I mean, I messed my back up because I think it got weak from just doing, you know, jujitsu and wrestling all the time it just wasn't getting the proper workout that it needed and so then that's why i've gotten back into lifting um in the last six months or so because i feel much better now i'm not an athlete uh by any measurement you know that's not who i am um but i just think it speaks to the fact that you've got people like me who just know my body i respond better to my athletic tasks when a strength and conditioning routine is incorporated and then you got people like who are real athletes like marcelo garcia saying, I never do any. I just did straight jiu-jitsu, and that's all that I needed. Um, so without getting more information from John, without getting more information from Greg Jackson, that's all I can really say about it. But I definitely intend to speak to him about it because that was surprising to me. And I spoke to some of John's coaches after the fight. None of them raised any issues with it to me. you know. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of that exactly. Question. Andre Koreshkov, where does he rank among the best welterweights in the world? Does beating Bendo hurt Bendo more than build Andre? No, I don't. I, I, it's a great question. And, um, and I actually asked Scott Coker about it yesterday. That interview will be up, I think, tomorrow, tomorrow morning. So be on the lookout for that. Boy, first of all, everyone was killing me on Twitter, deservedly so, I suppose, uh, because of MMA beat. I said, you know, you never know in MMA, but Henderson seems like the sure thing. And uh, of course, it was the opposite of that. So. Um, but I mean, I addressed this on the Monday morning analyst. If you guys didn't see it, basically I was like, I thought at some point, at some point Henderson would get the takedown. And once he essentially broke the dam, he'd be able to get it over and over as he needed it. And, and uh, unbelievably he never got close. He never got close once. 
not even one time. He, there were times he was able to stall against the fence, but just the size and strength and the widening base of Koreshkov, golly, Henderson was hopeless, man. I think the real victory here was how Henderson had head movement on the ground. Like he was on all fours, like ducking and dodging. That was kind of interesting. And then um, just not getting finished. Man, Benson Henderson is a tough guy. But this is my point. Henderson had luck at welterweight previously, most notably against Brandon Thatch. Now, Thatch's stock has gone down since then, not merely because of that fight, but because of subsequent performances as well. But um, he had a big, he was really outsized in that in that fight too. And I think some people thought, you know, Henderson can maybe move around weight classes a bit. Um, I have an interview with Paulie Malinaji that I got yesterday where he talks about weight class movement in MMA and then boxing. So I don't want to spoil it too much, but suffice to say, um, weight class moving, I think we've seen with guys like Henderson and guys like um, uh, Connor, it's not as easy as it looks. We'll see how Cerrone does against Cote. But Malinaji's point was like, over time, the longer the fight goes, the bigger man is just going to win out, even if he's less skilled. It's something else to think about. Um, so for me, you know, is Koreshkov, how good is he at welterweight? I don't know. He didn't really fight a good welterweight. He's obviously massively improved since that Askren fight. Like, I live blogged the Askren fight, and it was painful to watch. I mean, you cannot, if you've never seen it, you need to go back and watch it because that is a world-class ass-whipping that Askren put on him. I mean, Koreshkov was helpless. If Askren had, like, slightly more thunderous ground and pound, that would have been, I shudder to think even what that would have been. And I guess what happened to me was, you know, you see some of the couple, I think uh, what Henderson fought, um, who else did he fight? Benson Henderson. My, my brain is, as you can see, it is a disaster these days in terms of memory recall. Significant damage has been done. Yeah, the Masvidal fight, which I thought he lost, but okay, he competed in. And you thought, wow, if you can beat Jorge Masvidal, and you can't, I mean, surely you can beat, or you know, at least be competitive with Masvidal, and you can't beat Koreshkov. I mean, he didn't even get close with Koreshkov. So here's what I would say. We don't really know with Koreshkov, but he opened my eyes a lot in this fight, made me look bad, deservedly so, um, and really caught my attention. He is massively, massively massively improved. No, Ben Henderson is not the takedown artist or the same size as Ben Askren. Fair enough. But you couldn't get one. You couldn't get close on one. And I also think that Benson Henderson had a real problem with that Bellator cage. It is not merely that the cage is smaller. It is that it is circular. I think he had a problem as he was backing up. He would, thought he would find more exit angles, and they never were really there. You know, at distance, it wasn't like he was doing awesome, but he at least was able to land some leg kicks here and there. You know, he got a couple of punches in. It was against that fence. He just got mauled. He got absolutely mauled against that fence. And I think he found his back to it quicker and at different angles than he was expecting. Um, so that's that's weird. So, so we'll see. Um, but, you know, I was told that Douglas Lima took the Koreshkov fight because he had a torn ACL and just needed the money. And that's why I thought Douglas Lima lost. And then you see... You know, even if I thought Masvidal beat Henderson, it was still competitive. So you think, oh, Koreshkov is just going to get washed here. Nope, not at all. The salvaging news is it makes Koreshkov look like a beast. And if Benson Henderson can return to lightweight and have a strong performance there, 
I think all is basically forgiven. I think we're really sort of learning weight classes in MMA. There's a moment in time there, I th even I kind of bought into it. I was like, ah, maybe it's not what I think it is. Eh, maybe it is. Maybe it is exactly. We'll see how Cerrone does against Cote, but um, well, Cerrone's a bigger lightweight in terms of his frame. But you get the idea. So I think in the end, it makes Koreshkov look great. It's not a good look for Henderson, but because it was outside of his weight class, it's a little bit forgivable. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Bellator health insurance. How do fighters' health insurance cover in Bellator compared to the UFCs? Um, there's just enough for fight night coverage, which was what the UFC used beforehand. But out of that, there is none, which is a knock on them. We talk about being fighter first. This is a Viacom property. I think there should be pressure on them. Now, again, I don't know. Let me correct that. I don't know if it's financially viable for them, but that's something that should be explored. Who is more annoying? Donks who scream USADA after a fighter's decline like Pettis or donks who think Dominic Cruz disproves ring rust? It's got to be the latter. You know, because, again, I don't. I have no evidence that Pettis has ever done anything wrong. But when a fighter has this dramatic decline, it's at least worth entertaining possibilities, uncomfortable as they may be. I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that that's the thing that explains Pettis' decline, but okay. Among a number of theories, we I guess we can't rule it out. Um, but the the Dominic Cruz one just drives me crazy. It just drives me absolutely. Uh, it drives me up the wall in ways I can't even articulate. It is the worst argument you can make ever about anything. It is it, you know it, it's it's just so bad. <laughs> Michael Jordan won six NBA titles. Right. That's Michael Jordan. You know that, right? I mean, you, it, it, it is, it is, it, and here's the worst part about it. It is such, people are like, people use it like it's a compliment to Dominic Cruz. Well, look, Dominic Cruz was able to rise to the occasion. And therefore, if he can do it, you know, there's a, there's a precedent there. And I look at it exactly the opposite way. I'm like, what a disrespectful thing to say about Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz has such mental fortitude um, and then learned so much about the rehabilitative process about his body, developed a style of striking and moving to complement that, innovated the game literally, used all of these things to essentially maintain what is a high level of performance. In mixed martial arts. By the way, that fight with Dillashaw was close, and some people scored it for Dillashaw. But you know, you get the point. But it is such disrespect to Dominic Cruz to use what he did as a baseline for performance. It's like if we ever see that again, I frankly will be surprised to see someone come off a layoff like that. I will be. I will be completely surprised. Uh, and then to turn that around and be like. Well, that donk did it. Yeah. Maybe the most intelligent fighter we've ever seen, a guy who has innovated the game and has put in a level of physical rehabilitation you can't even wrap your head around. What on earth are you talking about that this is some kind of baseline for rehabilitative performance? That's the upper, 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 upper times infinity, times infinity, times infinity, 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 infinity times infinity 
performance of rehabilitative you know return that's what that is if anyone ever gets close to that i'll be impressed well dominic cruz did it yeah and <laughs> it's just shocking all right let's uh it's 115 well it's 118 geez so let's go to the twitter machine if we can see what we got here if weidman loses to rockhold in the rematch badly where does Weidman go from here? Good question. I asked him the very same one. He did not have a particularly strong answer for me. He was like, well, I know what I'm capable of, and that wasn't me, and so that's not even a thing I could even possibly entertain. That would be a very bad thing for him. Uh, I wouldn't rule out a third title fight for him, but it could be a while. It's a very much a, a Joseph Benavidez place. Well, he'll go in there and continue to beat other middleweights, probably. Um, but it's, I don't know. No me gusta. Do you think they'd still hold McGregor off of 200 if they didn't have GSP or John Bones Jones versus DC? Probably would be less likely, but maybe even then. Fantasy matchup. Kelson and Ryan Bader. Ryan Bader. Um, we talked about the powerlifting stuff. Someone sh shared a picture of them watching the live chat as they wait for their flight. I appreciate you watching. Is UFC 200 an event you would go to or just pay-per-view? I am probably going to go to UFC 200. I'm probably going to be there all week, even though I absolutely detest Vegas. If I see one more bachelor or bachelorette party where everyone's wearing trucker hats and sashes, you know, just please someone uh, fumigate <laughs> to get rid of these rodents. Uh, what have you heard about Will Brooks, his next fight, and his possible Bellator exit? What's up with him in Bellator MMA? Check out the Scott Coker interview for tomorrow. I asked him that very question. Who would win? Gustafson versus Glover, Yair versus Holloway, or Manuel versus Evans? Let's go through this. Gustafson versus Glover. I would probably say Gustafson. Yair versus Holloway. I'd go Holloway for now, but Yair's got some crazy upside. Um... Manoa versus Evans. Evans. How many MMA fans watch Good Morning America? The MMA fans I know aren't up before noon most days. That's precisely why they're on Good Morning America, to get the non-MMA fans. This is what I'm talking about. All the MMA fans are like, I'm going to boycott UFC 200. My ass, you're going to boycott 200. You are gonna. You can't wait to fire out the money from your wallet to watch that. They're trying to get everybody else. And when I say you, I don't mean you, Omar. I mean the proverbial you uh who do you think they'll match diaz with when he returns from suspension hopefully conor mcgregor oh you mean his brother um oh you can give him conor mcgregor too you guys know how i feel about this and you can hate on it i don't mind if you want to hate on it you can call me crazy you could say i'm stupid you can say whatever you want at some point a diaz versus lawler rematch needs to happen i am firmly firmly believe that maybe not that one but eventually Uh, thoughts on Faber's semi-disturbing below-the-belt accusations regarding Cruz and Dillashaw. Yeah, using PEDs. I mean, there's virtually no evidence. Well, virtually, there's no evidence of it that I'm aware of. If he has some, he should present it. Uh, doesn't USADA have like a snitching program? Uh, it seems out of character for him. I mean, if you're trying to make an impact with headlines and getting people's heads, 
Seems like an all right way to do it. Fantasy matchup. Yair Rodriguez versus Charles Oliveira. Two guys that take a lot of risks. That'd be a fun fight. I guess I'd lean Rodriguez, but that that's a tough fight for both guys. MVP is raw, but what's his potential? So this is an interesting question because I think he's really, really good. But in that Bellator cage, he's going to get trapped against it a lot. He actually would be better served given his style um, to compete in an octagon, a big octagon, where he can move and really get out of the way. And it's going to be hard to trap him because as long as people can, like you know, you saw Nishan, um Burrell put him against the fence constantly. Um, that it's hard to escape in that Bellator cage. It really is. UFC 200 press conference. With the fans on Jones's side, the last press conference, who gets the love today? Definitely still Jones. Dana pull, pulling Connor. Does that mean Connor will give no, UFC no more favors? Late switch opponent, West Coast time, etc. It's something you should be prepared for. Yeah, that could be could be the case. You know, they they leaned on him, and he might say, you know, what did it get me to for you to lean on me? Everyone's like, well, he made money in those events. He's going to make money no matter what event he fights on. The real loser when Conor McGregor says no to a late opponent change, it ain't him. It's them. They're the ones that put up all that money and they lose all those assets. All the money they have invested with the casino or whatever venue it is, all of the uh, production assets, all the advertisement assets, they're the ones that take the massive hit. It ain't him. Uh, Jones had many opponents beat in his and their minds before fights. Could the OSP fight create doubt in his mind? So it's interesting you mentioned that. So Brian Stan, one thing he said was, I was like, what differences did you notice? You know, he didn't look himself exactly, but is there anything else that we didn't know? And he said he had shared locker rooms with, and this is all public. You can look on my SoundCloud, uh, soundcloud.com slash the Luke Thomas. And he said, um, you know, he'd been in locker rooms previously with John. Now it's been several years removed since he's trained with him, but he's been in locker rooms previously where before a fight, there was never even a hint in his mind he wouldn't win. In fact, he'd tell the coaches, hey, coaches, I think I'm going to I'm gonna try this during the fight. And they'd be like, John, we didn't work on that. But the point being was he felt himself to be so invincible that um, it was just you know whatever he felt like doing because the inevitability of the outcome was never in question. And in this fight, you saw him say after the fact, I just have to make sure I get to the DC fight. You know, one left hook can change everything. One left high kick can change everything. And so um, there was a cautiousness about him that didn't exist before. Whether that will carry through to the next one, I don't know. I think he firmly believes he's going to beat DC. But it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether he maintains this air of invincibility. Is it possible the UFC knows Edgar is a bad matchup for Conor McGregor and so his next fight will be against Edgar if he wins as punishment? Uh, only if Edgar beats Aldo, which is why I hate that fight. Does the UFC make more money by making 200 and Diaz-McGregor 2 two separate events? Possibly. I think they're better all together, but it's, 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 it's potentially arguable, right? In other sports, players get fined for actions like this. Why didn't they just find him and move on? What a great question. What a great question. Why didn't they? That's something you should ask UFC management. Do you think when Connor returns, he will defend his title? Seems likely. Again, why didn't Con why didn't UFC just find Connor McGregor? I don't know. Which fight card is the best, 198 or 200? I'm going to lean 200, but if you want to make a case for 198, I won't get in your way. 
Who are on the Mount Rushmore of DC sports? Riggins, Unseld, Ovechkin, Daryl Green. Boy, those are four good names. Um, that's a good question. I have to think about that one. Bondra? I don't know. Thoughts on Yair Rodriguez and his finish on Saturday? Well, check out the Monday Morning Analyst. We talked a fair bit about that. Uh, Feely lacked foresight in the, year, in the Yair fight. Single attacks with no setups. Is this a coaching issue? I don't think so. I don't see that as a coaching issue. Um, BJ Penn versus Dennis Seaver. Who wins? I think BJ Penn will win, but I don't know. Someone asked a question that is barely English. Hating on Northcutt is something you dabble in. I, okay, whatever that means. But no hate on East on the heavyweight UFC 197 from Dana's show. Yes, because Sage Northcutt has been pushed identically to Cody East. I don't hate on Cody East because Cody East, I don't pay attention to him at all. If Jones fought DC this past weekend and won his title back and was scheduled to fight Rumble at 200, would it be bigger? Boy, that's a good question. Um, maybe not only because of the title unification issue as a casual sales angle or because of the rivalry, but but it's an interesting question. Someone says, who do you think would win in a Metamorris bout between Frank Mir and Fabricio Verdum? Verdum, and probably rather easily. Uh, advice for a 25-year-old martial arts virgin to start with BJJ plus opinion on choice of complementing striking art. Taekwondo, Muay Thai, boxing, and other. Well, in terms of how easy it would be to train other things in terms of one facility, you're probably likely to get BJJ and uh, Muay Thai, Thai boxing in the same gym. But if you're asking me what I think is better as a character building and in terms of, uh, well, it also depends on what they teach well in the place where you live, right? Um, maybe they don't do very good Muay Thai there, or maybe they do really good Muay Thai there. I don't know. But if I could do it all over again, I would do um, like really hardcore jujitsu, and then I would go to a real deal boxing gym. Um, you might say, well, Muay Thai is a better style for MMA than boxing, and I'd probably agree with you, but um, I just feel like old school boxing training uh in the states is it just appeals to me more it just there's something about the spartan atmosphere of it there's something about perfection to detail i see a lot of i'm sure that's not the way in thailand but i've seen a lot of thai, muay thai gyms here in, in the states where they're just a certain amount of sloppiness that they allow for uh I, i'm not saying that's an indictment of thai boxing generally in fact again i'm saying quite the opposite i'm sure there are plenty of gyms that don't tolerate that but at least in the United States, tons of boxing gyms I've been to, they are hardcore about precision, hardcore about precision. And jiu-jitsu by its very nature is uh, hardcore like that. You get guys who are big and strong who can kind of muscle things, but the only way you really get good at it is by perfecting it over time, over time. And so there's the, both jiu-jitsu and boxing kind of share this like perfection through repetition um, uh, ethos, basically. All right. 
Um, we have to go. I appreciate everyone watching. Um, stick around, Luke Thomas Show, Sirius XM 93. This will be at 4 p.m. today. I got Stefan Struve and the guy from, literally the guy from Harry Potter, who's now an MMA fighter. Both of those guys will be on the show today. We'll have a reaction to today's UFC 200 presser on there. Um, for this podcast, give it a thumbs up. Share it if you can. I really appreciate that. And uh, so you can subscribe to us at iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. Uh, thank you so much for watching. We'll be There will be an MMA beat tomorrow and lots of good content. The Coker interview will be up at 9 a.m. tomorrow. So I appreciate you all watching. And until next time, stay frosty.